0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg
0: Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's take a look at the smart home industry. Matt, you know, I recently sold my house in I only built it 17 years ago, but apparently it's not smart enough because a new buyer had his tech guy come by to do an assessment. I think they're going to be a big upgrade. I don't have a tech guy, but apparently a lot of people have need a tech guy. You need a tech guy for your house. Aaron, Amy, tech guy, co-founder and CEO of Brilliant Home Technology. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us here. I guess the smart home, I know it's a big thing. Give us a sense of how big it is, how fast it's growing. What are people doing to their homes
2: these days? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the next great platform because technology advances in a series of platform wars, and we've seen that happen with personal computers, Internet, and then mobile. Uh, Smart home has, is the next great platform, and it has rapidly uh, grown to more than $75 billion and is taking over every home
1: so what is it? I mean, is this where like the lights turn on and off when you walk in and out of rooms? Does your stereo like your playlist follow you around? Um, you know, does it adjust the thermostat? I, I don't get it.
2: It, it, it does all of those things, and it basically personalizes your home, so it does what you want it to do with a minimum of fuss and bother, and it opens up new kinds of possibilities. So when someone's at the door, you see who it is, and you can talk to them. You can give people permission to come into your home without having to make a key for them and, and uh, the security risks that that entails, and then you can automate functions. So when you're going to watch a movie or you're going to go to bed, all of the different things that need to happen, whether it's temperature, whether it's lighting, whether it's locks and so on can all happen automatically
0: so what are some of the most popular functionality uh, that I guess people are asking for these days
2: yeah I mean smart locks has been a a really uh, important category of access control because there are a lot of security uh, benefits uh, to to being able to control access uh, remotely uh, security has been a, a, a big uh, area where, where you ha- you have peace of mind that your home is secure uh, lighting is a very important uh, area uh, smart music uh, is, is another is another big one smart climate control both saves a lot of energy and makes homes more comfortable so all of these categories have uh, already proven themselves to be very significant
1: so where do consumers get? Hold of all this. I mean, Paul's homebuyer had a tech guy. I, I don't even know where I would go to get one.
2: <laughs> yeah, so there certainly are some, uh, you know, some tech guys uh, that you can get, and so on. Increasingly, what we're seeing at Brilliant is new homes being built with technology in them as well. So you can buy it yourself and you can install it yourself. You can have a tech guy do it if you're not that, that tech forward yourself. Or it you, you simply comes uh, when you get a new house or uh, or you move into a new apartment because the, the developers are increasingly building homes as smart homes.
0: So one of the things I'm concerned about, or, I, or I've noticed, I guess, is that the technology changes so quickly. So whatever tech you put into your house, it's out of date. You know, five years later, it seems like it's got to be super, super flexible to be adaptable going forward.
2: It- it is um it is and, and that's one of the changes uh and one of the things that companies like brilliant are doing is making sure that what we're doing is extensible so for example we're updating our software every two weeks and the software is really the the heart of the system um so your home actually gets better as you uh, as you live in it and, and we've already seen this in other arenas. like if you have a Tesla car for example you know there are always software updates and and you know one day your car can parallel park itself one day it can uh, semi autonomous Drive, uh, And that happens without having to update the underlying hardware platform.
1: Are you worried about these devices getting hacked? I mean, I wouldn't want, for example, somebody to be watching me through my refrigerator or whatever, <laughs> you know? <laughs>
2: Watching through the refrigerator. No, this is this is a really important topic, and uh, and yes, you know the the responsible companies uh, in this field are very very careful about about security and actually bring additional security to uh, to bear. I, I myself have a background in, in cybersecurity, um, and you, you know I think that we have the ability to offer much better security. For example, you don't have to leave your key under the welcome mat or in a fake rock in the garden that everyone knows what it looks like. It's a gift people access
0: to your house all right i guess that's that's where we're going matt so when you you know buy your home i'm happy to go there i just I want
1: someone to do it for me yeah wanna... you'll get a guy we'll find yeah. you a guy all right yeah
0: maybe aaron maybe we'll do that for it. aaron amy co-founder and ceo of brilliant home technology She's talking about upgrading the homes to technology um and again it, you know again what i've noticed is the technology changes so quickly so you you look at some of those houses where they have like panels you know, kind of in the wall and they don't use them anymore. The intercom, all that kind of stuff. I gotta so. say,
1: I, I first heard about all this stuff when Bill Gates um, built Xanadu 2.0 like 20 years ago. <laughs> so now regular people are getting what right, Gates has. exactly. Let's get to the vaccine mandate for federal employees. It looks like President Biden is set to announce a vaccine mandate. And we have Josh Wingrove, who's uh, broken the story. Josh, what are we looking for?
3: You know, we're going to hear from him at 5 p.m., probably, probably going to get some more details beforehand. But to rewind to July, they set a rule he had to be vaccinated or he had an option to sort of do testing and masking and that sort of thing. Now he's expanding it, sort of taking away that option B. So you have to be vaccinated. and He's expanding the number or the scope of the federal contract workforce that it applies to also previously it was aimed at at on-site so essentially more people being covered by this without an option to instead of get a vaccine get regular testing and masking so you know obviously many details still tbd you would expect pushback or legal challenges potentially to this we don't know when this would take effect we don't know what it would mean for let's say a federal worker who showed up on that day without being able to demonstrate vaccination so definitely moving target on this one but a substantial expansion of the vaccine requirement for federal workers
0: Uh, you know it's interesting josh you know roughly how many people we're talking about here like it's it's not all federal employees it's just executive branch employees plus federal contractors that still sounds like a, a lot of people to me
3: yeah i mean i think we're talking millions of people but the exact number we you know we don't know and i think the question that i have right now is is, you know, are we going to see pushback from labor groups? Are there going to be legal challenges or arbitration, you know, grievances, these kinds of things filed, you know, potentially, but the White House broadly views these sort of, you know, a la carte mandates, pretty big one for them as a federal government. But, you know, for smaller companies are doing the same thing as a good way to sort of spur vaccination rates. People sort of, you know, don't want to be ordered by the government to do it overall but if your employer requires it there's there's evidence that, that leads to an uptick in vaccinations but you know of course the concern on the flip side is that it might generate blowback or you know get people's up. You, you know that kind of thing so you know probably, probably a, lot, I mean, a lot of moving parts on this especially it's
1: almost like they're trying to antagonize um the trumpian anti-vaxxers we know that 15 percent maybe more are vehemently opposed right
3: uh, yeah, it, I mean that's different camps, right? You got hardcore anti-vax people. You got people that can't be bothered. You have people that have barriers, like they don't have paid time off to go get it, that sort of thing. You know, I think it's worth noting that vaccine hesitancy has been declining in the U.S. Not maybe as fast as other countries, but it's been going down. And we now have, you know, seventy-five percent of U.S. adults with at least one shot. That's a fairly big number. And you know, they they had shot for seventy percent in July. They hit it in August. They're now at seventy-five. The problem, of course, is with Delta, you might need to get quite a bit higher than that. When you, And, of course, there's a whole segment of the population, those under 12, that aren't eligible for a vaccine yet are probably weeks or months away from being yeah, eligible. So, you know, they, yeah, they absolutely, You know, if you're a diehard anti-vaxxer, this is probably not going to change <laughs> your mind. But there's uh, there's folks in the middle, essentially, that aren't vaccinated, that have questions, maybe haven't gotten around to it, uh, that, that I think they're sort of hoping that mandates at the employer level, in other words, your job making you do it. We'll, we'll have a dif- have a difference.
0: Yeah, Josh, that's, uh, you know, the big take story of the day that Matt and I had. Uh, that we were talking about this morning focused on, you know, corporate mandates. Um, does a White House hope or anticipate that by taking this aggressive federal policy that they will, you know, maybe coax or urge or prod some big corporations to kind of follow suit with vaccine yeah. mandates?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're sort of hoping that people join the parade behind them. And this big wave started, you'll recall, with the approval of Pfizer's vaccine. Remember, for months we were using it only on an emergency authorization. When the FDA gave full approval, Biden's administration took that as a real sort of turning point to start saying, "Okay, you know, corporate America, look, you know, know, it's not an emergency authorized vaccine. This is now an approved vaccine. So you're on stronger footing morally, legally, what have you, to be able to require vaccination. So I think we're going to expect to hear him call for that this evening, beat that drum. We also expect... Uh, him to give an update on boosters remember they plan to start booster shots in a, a week from monday maybe more on testing a couple other elements on schools there could be some you know news if you will in this speech but broadly i think he just wants to kind of sweep together what they've been doing over the summer to try to curb this thing as those cases rose
1: but so far as far as we know this is only a requirement for the two two vaccine shots or is it uh will they require three now
3: That's a good question. Right now, they consider two to be fully vaccinated. So that, but that's as of now. So presumably, that may change. But that is a huge open question right now among researchers about what will happen. And of course, those folks that got that Johnson and Johnson shot, something like 14 million people in the U.S., they don't know what they're going to do for booster shots. And you know, they're considered fully vaccinated after one shot. So you know, this a lot of questions still to be answered. We expect to have some clarity in you know the afternoon, either around the speech, perhaps before. Uh, the speech on, on what exactly they're proposing and, and as I say I'm expecting a bit of a wave of statements from like labor groups and what have you saying you know responding to this you know both their members potentially being forced to do this and we just simply don't know the what, you know, what if kind of factor. If someone shows up, are they fired? Are they furloughed? Are they sent home? Are they, you know, work from home? Yep. Like what is the deal? We don't know.
0: That's going to be fascinating. All right. We're going to get more details coming throughout the day. You'll have, and your team, lots of reporting there. I am sure Josh Wingrove, White House correspondent for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. <music> Again, green on the screen, yet again at or near all time highs. As we continue to hear that from Greg Jarrett and his reporting, seemingly on a daily basis. It's just for a lot of folks, this feels like a market and looks like a market that is priced to perfection and might have some vulnerability into it. Uh, but that's not stopping this market. Let's check in with an expert who knows this stuff. Lisa shallot Chief Investment Officer for Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. They have $1.5 trillion, with a T uh, in assets under management. Lisa, thanks so much for uh, joining us here today. I-, I guess I'll start with kind of the wall of worry uh, kind of question or, or topic here. How concerned are you about this market given some of the headwinds that, you know, folks rightfully point out, whether it's rising interest rates, tapering, and, you know, just the Delta variant. How do you view this market right here?
4: Uh, So, look, you know, we've been on the record, um, you know, to say that this is a a market that, for the most part, uh, while it can claim that it's climbing the wall of worry and and certainly positioning uh, in, you know, the mega cap tech stocks, suggest an element of defensiveness, Um, you know, our sense has been that that this is a market, uh, you know, that is shrugging off most of the concerns, uh, whether it is, um, you know, disruptions coming from Delta variant, whether it's, you know, supply chain concerns, whether it's been the the China regulatory uh, crackdown uh, or, you know, shifts in policy um, from the Fed. Um nothing really has gotten in the way um, of this market. You know it's it's notable, I think, uh, that uh, for for much of the period, uh, you know, after the first quarter, many folks were saying that the market was rallying because interest rates were falling. Uh, you know, really, over the last uh, month or so, we've seen the ten year back up from its ultimate lows on the ten year of one seventeen. We're back up here. Uh, into the mid 130s on the 10-year, uh, and and even that has not, uh, you know, interrupted this this grind higher um, in markets. So, but you uh, but you expect, are, expect are, a, a
1: pullback, right, Lisa? You expect a 10 to 15 percent correction be- before the end of the year.
4: Yeah, we do, and 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 um, the reason for that is essentially twofold. So. Uh, with that move in rates, we ultimately think that price earnings ratios, especially on those most expensive stocks, uh, should compress. We've seen P.E. multiple compression uh, in many, many other parts of the market, whether you're talking about international stocks, you're talking about uh, value stocks, more cyclical stocks, you're talking about the small caps. Uh, this is the one area of the market that has remained immune so far. Uh, And there's just no precedent for that, uh, you know, historically. When rates go up, ultimately, P-E ratios um, do come down. So we we see that as a risk. And secondarily, uh, you know, we're seeing folks talk about the growth scare. We're seeing people downgrade their estimates for third-quarter GDP growth. Uh, Even at Morgan Stanley, Ellen Zentner has cut her third-quarter number from 6.5 percent annualized growth rate to a 2.9 percent. That's a pretty big cut. Uh, And yet folks, uh, you know, don't think that's going to harm earnings in the third quarter. And we think that that could be another negative catalyst. So, you know, lower P.E. ratios and potentially uh, earnings disappointments or or fewer positive earnings revisions are the two catalysts that that might unleash that 10-15% correction. So with that
0: type of correction between now and the end of... The end of the year possible? To, are you suggesting people raise cash? Are you suggesting they rotate into uh, just maybe more cyclical names? How do you think people should position themselves for that?
4: Yeah, so we're we're uh, in the camp that says this is about uh, rotating and actively managing. Um, so we are buyers uh, of consumer services, of financials, of some of the uh, industrial cyclicals, some some you know safer. Uh, health care names and some staples. Um, it's just really some of these long duration oriented um, secular growth stocks that, that we just think are long in the tooth and, and need to kind of uh, take their hit. So we're rotating here. Uh, no need to, to panic and go to cash and get paid nothing uh, and even negative returns after inflation. Uh, but we do think that we're in a bull market. It's just A bull market in in things other than the s p 500 index
1: how important is the infrastructure bill or how important is um fiscal uh you know trillions of dollars in continued fiscal support
4: um you know our perspective is that it's not so much the the dollars because what people forget uh is that uh, a lot of this is going to be spent over you know multiple years if not if not a decade uh, and so on any annual basis, it's, it's, it's fractions of, of percentage points of growth. Um, but it's really the, the, the um, shift in mindset uh, that we are in a, um, in, in a more fiscally active environment. And, and um, you know, that is growth-oriented. Uh, and so, you know, we are uh, constructive broadly. Uh, I don't know, um, you know exactly what the, the the form of final legislation is going to take, given all the puts and takes of this. Uh, but we do think we're going to get something, uh, and that something on the margin uh, is helpful.
1: Lisa, great to get your take. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope we can get you back on soon. Lisa Shallot is the Chief Investment Officer for Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. Obviously, a uh, very important view to get. So yeah. uh, always good to, to hear from Lisa. You know, we are seeing continued gains in the markets right now. And as we heard uh, earlier from um, Uh, From Dave Wilson, we see the S&P 500 led by energy, financials, and materials. This is Bloomberg. Now, let's get it over to Nathan Shetty. I told you we're going to be joined by the head of multi-asset at Nuveen. They've got $1.2 trillion in assets under management. We're going to talk about the um, opportunities and risks in private markets Where do you start when, um, uh, uh, Nathan, when analyzing such a huge universe?
5: Thanks, uh, Matt, Paul, for having me on. It is indeed a massive universe, and I think um, it's only growing. We've seen uh, a ton of interest in in, in private markets, and I think this has been driven really by two phenomenon. Uh, The first is this lower expected return environment, uh, at least on a go-for-it basis, and i I'd argue the second one is, is partly driven by the volatility we're seeing in, in economic variables and broad, broad indicators. So uh, investors are moving to private markets in order to uh, incorporate them in their portfolios for, for more diversification. They're trying to eke out every basis point of return that they can, and that illiquidity premium is certainly one place to source it.
0: So it's interesting, uh, Nathan, we hear a little bit more, I guess, really over the last several weeks and months about private credit. And I guess that's simply, you know, investors looking anywhere they can for yield. Give us kind of the risk return profile as, you know, you guys go go out from, you know, maybe, you know, looking at treasuries or looking at uh, public corporates to, to going out into the private credit market. Give us a sense of the risk return that you guys think about.
5: Yeah, private credit has just absolutely exploded, and, and, and part of that is due to um, you know, some of the bank reg, etc. and ultimately um, syndicated loans haven't had the same level of supply that we've seen in the past. So private credits stepped in there um, and really have a, a, a risk-return profile that's not dissimilar to their public cousins, meaning syndicated loans, but... Um, at least on the middle market lending or senior secured side, we're looking at high single digits and, um, uh, you know, a lower risk profile than you'd see in public markets. And again, part of that is due to that illiquidity risk premium that you're getting. Um, I think another reason why private credit is of such interest is you're sitting higher in the cap structure. Private equity or VC has always been part of uh, portfolios, but with private credit, you're sitting Higher up in that cap structure, have to deploy less risk, but again, a very attractive risk return profile, particularly um, for income-oriented investors.
1: So, how much does uh, how much do things like Fed policy matter to private markets? How quickly do you see follow through?
5: I mean, look, Fed policy matters for all markets public or private, and it depends on the private market we're talking about. Some are going to um, transmit or or reverberate in in those private markets quicker than others, particularly those that are sensitive to fixed income. We were just talking about private credit. Most of private credit is in um, LIBOR plus type lending or floating rate structures. So um, you have some uh, some ability to manage that rates duration risk, which is really going to reflect Fed policy much more so than you would with public market rate sensitive assets. And those are obviously going to be reflected um, immediately. In the private real asset space, um, not dissimilar. Funding rates, uh, credit spreads, they all are going to have an impact on uh, demand and, and ultimately the ability to, to, to purchase and supply. Um, In the real asset space. But 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 the the implications and that transmission from shifts in Fed policy are going to take some time. They're going to take multiple quarters. And ultimately, I guess that goes back to why we've seen such a huge uptick in demand and interest is to mitigate some of that volatility around, um, you know, economic variables. And that volatility around policy uncertainty gives it time to digest um, and ultimately uh, reflect more fundamentals going forward.
0: Nathan, we're presumably heading into, uh, you know, there is inflation in this economy, Nathan. The discussion, I guess the debate is whether it's transitory or there's something more longer term. How does your portfolio, a portfolio that has a lot of, you know, alternative assets, private market investments, private credit investments, how does that typically fare in, you know, a inflationary, perhaps rising rate uh, environment?
5: Um, thanks for the question. And uh, obviously, inflation is, is top of mind for all investors right now. It's re-entered the conversation. It does exist. There's supply chain issues. And we can argue um, round and round about, that's transitory in nature. We do believe that it's going to settle um, at a at a level that's higher than we've seen in the past decade, this disinflationary uh, decade. So, um, in a portfolio the size of ours and a portfolio that is highly diversified, traversing public and private markets, the big area where. Um, say, an uptick in inflation is is, is going to uh, influence the portfolio is in the bond equity correlation. I mean, people hold bonds in their portfolio right? Um, as a diversifier against equities. When we enter higher inflation regimes, we see that correlation tends to flip. Yep. I mean, this, this dynamic of correlation, that 30 years ago, it, it was positively correlated. So um, for us, Right. It's very much about finding diversification. Gotcha. We need to find diversification. Real assets um, and private assets up. do provide that diversification that we're seeking in yep. those environments.
0: All right, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate appreciate it. Nathan Shetty, head of multi-asset at Nuveen, talking to us about the private market alternatives
1: in a portfolio.
0: This is Bloomberg.